Good morning, everybody. I'm thankful you're here. Tonight, I want to remind you of, of Family Matters. I know we've mentioned it once already, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting as we navigate the reality of COVID. I mean, goodness, in March of 2020, it's like the emergency break was pulled. And, and you know, we had a great staff retreat in, uh, a couple weeks ago with our staff. And it's just time to uh, take the emergency break off. And, uh, and, this, and tonight is a, is a great uh, opportunity for us to deal with some important family matters. So I hope you, hope you come tonight, uh, 6.30. You know, um, 6% of every dollar that is given to our church, we give to the cooperative program. And I love that. It, it, basically what that means, maybe you've not heard of that, but the cooperative program describes how we cooperate with churches all over the world, like-minded churches, and we, we engage in some important ministry pursuits. And one of the most important ministry pursuits that we uh, deploy is uh, disaster relief. And right now we have a team that's, uh, we, we, we had a team for the last week that's been in Louisiana. It's that way, right? I don't, wherever Louisiana is, I'm not sure. Uh, but they're, they're there. And, uh, and then we had a group that left Friday, and then we have a, a group that's leaving today. And what I love about that ministry, and it's such a valuable investment for us, because as Southern Baptists, we cooperate, and, and we have tons of people that are down there that are helping. Our church has a kitchen. We have a mobile kitchen, and, and we're feeding people, and we have some people working on chainsaw crews. And, and, and it's just an incredible ministry because it run, it's, a, it's a team that runs into a disaster. Amen. And oftentimes, it's in a disaster that people realize their need of Jesus. Now, now, we need Jesus all the time. We need Jesus when things are going well. We need him when things are tough. But, but what I want us to do is begin just by praying for them for that team, and for those divine appointments, and for God to just use them. So would you join me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this vision of disaster relief. And I thank you for the many men and women that give their time to go and, and help. And Father, as our team is there, as, as some, some of our church are leaving today, I pray that you would use them and lead them. I pray that there would be divine appointments as they engage people that need you. So, Lord, would you work in a supernatural way? And I thank you, Lord, that you're at work, you're at work powerfully in, in the ups and downs of our nation, our, our lives. And I pray you'd bless them, Lord. Lead us today, and would you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra 7. Now, we're, we're continuing through this incredible book, and, 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 and today we're seeing in Ezra 7 this historical record of, of, of a revival. And, and you know, it's been uh, revival. That, that's an old word, right? We, we've, you may have heard of revivals. You know, uh, how many of you remember a two-week revival? Anybody remember those? I mean, those things, those bad boys used to last two weeks long, you know, and uh, every night. And then, then it went to one-week revival and then three days. And, uh, and, and, but, but revival is not really describing a meeting. It's describing a moment when God's people came back to his word. And that's what you see in Ezra, Ezra, the book of Ezra. You see God's people coming back to his word. And what's important, when God's people come back to the word, they, they start to live out their, their calling. You realize the calling of God's people from the beginning of time is to point the world to a Savior. 
That's the calling that remains of God's people. We, uh, we, we, are, we are called to honor the Lord. There's a reason that we don't get saved and immediately go to heaven. Because God has a work for us to do. And one of the more, most important works for God's people to do is to point the world to a, the one who saves. The one who can forgive sin. The one who can rescue us from the greatest captor known to humanity, which is Satan's grip. Satan himself. And, and in Ezra 7, it's, it, it really provides an important picture of a revival of God's people. So we've been, in Ezra, we, we've been looking at Ezra 7 the entire uh, time as we've walked through the book because Ezra 7.10 is really the, the crux of the book. So, so we've been working to memorize it. So again, let's practice. I want you to stand with me. Now, uh, we're going to look at Ezra 7.10. We're going to try to quote it together. Hopefully by the end of, end of September when the last uh, message in Ezra will uh, be finished, we'll have this verse down, right? Uh, well, let's work on it. Uh, remember, a pattern of memorization is helpful to do the reference, the verse, and the reference. So let's work on it together. You ready? Here we go. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra 7.10. One more time. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra 7.10. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, now, let's recap a little bit in the book. Uh, We've seen in in Ezra chapter 1 through 6, we saw in Ezra chapter 1 the first wave of people that left Babylon and came back to Jerusalem. And their goal was to build the temple, rebuild the temple. They started with the altar, and then uh, the work stopped for, for a number of years. And then they finished the altar. And then you see in, uh, uh, in, in chapter, uh, chapter 3 through 6 this opposition that came up. And there was major opposition to the work of God. And, and, and it's interesting, as, as you get to 7 through 10, chapter 7 through 10, you, you almost see Ezra uh, doing a second verse of the same song, really. He is, uh, in chapter 7, you see an introduction, introduction of Ezra. We get to see who he is and some of his character. Uh, then you see this letter that is written. And, and then in chapter 8, you see some internal struggles that we'll process in the next couple of weeks. And, and, and then you see this really tragic um, disobedience of God's people because they're starting to intermarry with people of other gods. And, uh, but, 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 you know, Ezra 7, when you look at this chapter, look at it with me because it can be divided into three parts. The first 10 verses you see about Ezra and his character, and then, then you see this letter from, uh, from Artaxerxes. Uh, and then in the last two verses, you see how, how Ezra blesses God. He praises the Lord for, for, for all that he's doing. And that's chapter 7. And and, and you know, I think it's important to notice as, you, as, you, as we study this book, and I think you, you, it's easy to overlook this, but I don't want to overlook it today. Because as you study Ezra 7, we, we saw last week that Tatanai, you know, that governor, that, that he was opposing 
as the, the people uh, of that time, and Ezra was looking back on that, uh, and, and they're opposing God's people, and, and, and I think it's an important notice to, or point to make that, that when you're in the middle of God's will, you should expect opposition, and we're going to see in the rest, of the, the rest of the book, there's opposition from outside forces, but there's also internal opposition, and we are fighting together. But, uh, but, but, you know, it's interesting to notice what happens between Ezra 6 and 7. Because remember, last week, Tath and I said, I want your name. I want your name. Who are you? Who gave you permission to do this? And, and they gave them their names. Remember, Darius wrote that letter and said, hey, you can continue the work. And they continued the work. But, but I'll tell you, they were still ticked about it. So ticked that, that they started to, tr- they kept opposing God's people. And do you know what happened between Ezra 6 and 7? Well, it was the book of Esther. You remember the story of Esther? Esther is an incredible story of, of, of you ought to read it this week. You ought to take some time to read through the story of Esther. And, and, I, and I hope that you move past the VeggieTales version, okay? Uh, uh, VeggieTales is fine, I guess. And, but... But in the VeggieTales version, uh, Queen Vashti didn't make the king a sandwich, right? That's not how it happened. It was way worse than that, okay? So the, the real story is better. You ought to know it. Um, but you remember the story. Vashti uh, was asked to do this really humiliating thing that she refused. She refused to do it. And, 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 and you didn't refuse the king, so she was banished. And, um, and it was... Uh, uh, the, the king decided, man, I need a new woman. So he had this really R-rated beauty contest. And you know, the Bible's R-rated. And, and it, was, it was this R-rated beauty contest that took place. And, and Esther won it. She won the contest, if you will. She had some coaching from her uncle Mordecai. And, and, and those, that's a very important character in the story of Esther. But, but to, just to make a long story short, um, you have in the story of Esther, Haman. This happened between 6 and 7 of, of, of Ezra. Haman was a, was a Hitler type of a guy. He, was, he, would, he hated the Jewish people. He hated Mordecai. And Mordecai was, was a leader in the kind of a military leader. And, 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 um, and, and Haman would say to Mordecai, you need to bow to me. And Mordecai's like, I ain't bound to you. I bow to God only. And, and so this made Haman mad. And Haman set forth a plan to wipe out, to literally kill all the Jews. And this was a, and, and what's interesting about Haman, he had the political capital to actually pull it off. And so Haman develops this plan and gets the king to make a decree, uh, and, a, and a decree made by the, by the king could not be stopped. And what's interesting is Haman then builds these gallows and these, and these um, they were going to, you know, the Persians developed crucifixion. They were the, the brutal leaders that kind of started that process. That wasn't started by the Romans. It was started by the Persians. And, and so Haman had made these gallows and these, these uh, they were going to impale God's people, especially Mordecai. Remember that night, the king is, couldn't go to sleep. So what does he do? He pulls out his history books. I mean, do you do that? Like when you can't go to sleep, do you pull out your Oklahoma history books? Right? That puts you right out, right? Um, but, but he pulls out his history books. The Persians were really good at keeping records. And remember the king starts reading about this incident with this guy named Mordecai. And Mordecai stopped a, uh, an, an, an attempt on the king's life. And the king's flipping through the book there, and he's like, you know what, we didn't do anything for Mordecai. 
Now, he doesn't tell Haman that. He calls Haman, come, brings Haman in and says, Haman, if I want to honor somebody, how do I honor uh, somebody that the king really wants to honor? Well, Haman thinks it's him. And, and, and Haman's like, oh, well, king, if you want to honor somebody, and man, he pulls out this, he dreams up this deal that was like amazing. And, and he, you know, parade through town, man, on your horse. Man, this would be, you could scream, great is this guy. And, and then I would have loved to have seen Haman's face when the king goes, man, that's a brilliant idea, Haman. Why don't you do this for Mordecai? I mean, I, would love, I hope we get to see the video in heaven of, of seeing his face. But that made Haman even more mad. But see, Haman didn't know that Esther was Jewish. And in that story of Esther, Esther boldly goes to the king and says, look, this threat that, that Haman has made up, it's against me and my people. And Haman realizes he's in trouble. He gets on his knees and he's begging the queen to forgive him. The king walks in and it looks compromising. So what does the king do? He's like, you, you, are you hitting on my wife? Is basically what the king thought. And, and the king then impales Haman and his entire family on the same gallows that he made for the Jews. Now, what's interesting about the, about the decree that was made, he couldn't change the decree. But the king made another decree. They said, he, the king said to the, the Jewish people, I make a decree that you can defend yourselves. And I'll tell you what, that changed the game for the Jews. They were like, all right. We can fight. Jews could fight, right? They've always been, been good fighters. And boy, that took the want to out of everybody that wanted to kill the Jews at that point. And, and they survived because of Esther. And it was, it was just part of the opposition that was going on when it comes to uh, this incredible story, this incredible moment as God's people experienced um, provision. You know that the Jews today celebrate the Feast of Purim, and it is the celebration of this moment with Esther between Ezra 6 and 7. So I wanted you to know that because we need to feel the opposition that, that takes place. Um, and I think it's interesting to note that all through history, the people of God have been hated. The people of God have faced, have faced cultural pressure and cultural opposition and and, and you know, for us, you and I, we've been grafted in to God's people when, because of Christ, that, that we as Gentiles, we get to be named as a people of God. And, and, and you know what? We need to think about the, the reality that, you know, Jesus, God's people are, are, are disliked by culture. Now, that doesn't change the fact that we're to do good to our enemies. We're to, we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who come against us. And Jesus taught us this. We're to live out the fruit of the Spirit. But, but, but let me tell you something. As we walk with the Lord today, we're not trying to win a popularity contest, right? We're to walk with the Lord, and we're to obey the Lord. We're, and the goal of our lives is, is, is not to be popular. The goal of our lives, the goal of our, goal of our ministries is, is to point the world to a Savior that came. And in Ezra, I think it's interesting, as, as you noticed, a couple of things that we can't miss. That, that in this book and, and, and all through history, we see this, that God is masterfully moving the minds and the hearts and the lives of leaders to accomplish his purposes. 
And this was true at the time of Esther. This is true today. God moves leaders into place. And God does this for a reason. You also see something very important in the time of Ezra and all through history that God always delivers his people from captivity. And you know, for you and I, our captivity that we've been delivered from is, is from Satan's grip, from death, from, from, from the sin in our lives. And, and, and God's still delivering people from captivity. And you may have walked in the room today and, and you're still captive to your sin. I want you to know Christ can save you. That's why Jesus entered entered human history and went to the cross to save you. And and the more I dig into Scripture and these Old Testament stories, the more relevant God's Word is, um, the more confidence I get to walk with the Lord. And, and, and you know, I've said this before. As you look at Ezra 7, I, I keep thinking about Matthew 7. Matthew 7. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, that, that famous sermon, the sermon that Jesus preached when he said, and, and remember this, when you hear these words of mine, Jesus says, and you put them into practice, right? You're like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains came, the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it did not fall. Did not fall. But if you hear these words of mine and you do not put them into practice. You're like a foolish man who built his house on a sand. The rains came, the winds blew it beating against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And, and when you look at the book of Ezra, especially Ezra, Ezra 7, it's a revival back to the Word of God. And this is very important. Now, point number one today is obvious, and, and, and I want us to mention it before, but, but you see a very clear challenge from the life of Ezra. Point number one is this, study the Bible. I want to challenge us to study the Bible. Look at, uh, I want you to see the impact here. And I want this idea in your mind, and then I'm going to come back and visit it at the end. But look at verse 1 with me. I want you to see how cool this is. This is so crazy cool. And it's so easy to read through it and and, and miss it. But it says in verse 1, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, do you know how cool that is? That, that, That line right there. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, and then it goes on the next five verses, just giving his lineage. He's writing at the time of Artaxerxes. You know what he's done before in chapters 1 through 6? Ezra is looking back about 60 years. Think about 60 years ago. Okay, I, 60 years ago. Who was president 60 years ago? I didn't look this up. I should have. Was it, was it uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy? Eisenhower? Eisenhower. This would be like, Ezra's writing this, and he's like describing what the people at Eisenhower's time did. Let's not miss that. that let, let's, let's consider, and where I want to land at the end of this message And the challenge at the end of this message is our generational impact. Hang on to that. Look at verse 6. He goes on with Ezra's heritage through verse 5. Then Ezra went up from Babylonia. Look at this about him. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. No, notice this. He was skilled in the, in the law of Moses. 
that who gave, who gave the law of Moses, as it just tells us, who gave it to him? Who, who? Talk to me, who? The Lord gave him the law of Moses. The Lord gave us this book, and, and, and Ezra was skilled in the law that the Lord had given him. And notice what it, what it says there, that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Oh my goodness. This is such a big, big statement. You know, years ago in 2008, we started the ambassador baseball team. In the last service, um, one of our ambassador, former ambassador players who is throwing in the mid-90s right now, upper 90s for ORU, was here today with his girlfriend. And you know, as... as, um, he came up and hugged me at the end of the service, and, 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 and I reminded him about what I used to say to the ambassadors. You know, the ambassadors, I would always tell them, and I, I told him today, I said, you know, um, there are a lot of people that can play baseball. There, there are a lot of people that are good at baseball. But there are people that are good at baseball with the hand of God on them? Oh, my goodness. That's a different level. I used to tell my son as, as my son, I grew up in my house and became a pretty good guitar player. And he's a good, like today, I got a picture from Paige Cole, who's in Yukon today, listening to my son play guitar. He's, he's at his brother's church. My son's on staff there at his brother's church in Yukon, Oklahoma. And, and Eric's playing guitar. And I would tell Eric all the time, Eric, there's a lot of, there are a lot of good guitar players. But can I challenge you to be one of those guitar players with the hand of God on them? You know, there are a lot of businessmen. Can I challenge you to be a businessman with the hand of God on you? There are a lot of teachers. Can I challenge you to be a teacher with the hand of God on you? You know, you, you know look, look, you name what you're good at. Notice that, that what made Ezra different, what made him stand out was the hand of God on, on him. Man, I pray that we are a church with the hand of God on us. I pray that you live your life with the hand of God on you, that when it comes to your family, the hand of God is on your family. Verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and Levites, and the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came up to Jerusalem. Notice this. For the good hand of his God was on him. Okay? Again, you see, the good hand of God was on him. Now, notice something, a very important word that starts verse, verse 10 that, we, that might sound familiar to you. Notice how verse 10 starts. Four. The hand of God was on him for, notice this, he, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The hand of God was on him because he had a revival going back to the word of God. That's why this is so important for us. To be a people that say, Lord, we want to come back to you. We want your hand on us. We want you to lead us. We want to be people that walk with you, that, that are used by you. Well, the people that are used by the Lord in significant ways are following the word of God. 
They study the Word of God. Now, now I want you to notice, and real quick, I want you to turn to Psalm 119. Uh, a little Bible trivia. You know, that's the longest chapter in the Bible. I'm not going to throw this uh, person in my life under the bus because uh, but last week, uh, this person was, was in their quiet time, and I had overheard them, and, and they were reading. They go, oh, I'm on Psalm 119. Oh, man, I got to read the whole thing. Uh, I was kind of wanting a shorter verse because it's a long chapter. But do you know that it's significant? The whole chapter of Psalm 119 is about the impact of the Word of God. I, don't, I think it's interesting that the longest chapter in the Bible points us to the importance of the Word of God. But, but let me point just to some highlights of Psalm 119. Verse 9, look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Boy, that's a good verse to memorize. Look at verse 72. Turn over to verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Look at verses, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Look at verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Look at verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Notice the power of the word of God. And that's something I pray that we learn to study and we learn to engage because, look, you need the word of God. Look, I know that some people go, man, my, I don't have time to have a quiet time. My life's too busy. Let me tell you something. You're too busy not to spend time in the word of God. So I pray that you, you learn some, here's some three, three quick principles. And, and I've got more to say today than I have time to preach. So that's just the reality of, I'm trying to preach shorter. I just can't do it. So just, just love me anyway. But, 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 but under, understand this, if you're studying the Bible, you need to look at the meaning. What does it say? You need to be able to discern and understand what is the meaning of the Bible. You also need to be able to look into the context of the Bible. What, what, did, what did the Bible say back then? And we work on this. That we got to understand that when Jeremiah 29.10 was written, uh, talking about the, the rebuilding of the altar, he was not talking about Owasso. He was talking about Jerusalem. Okay, so we need to understand context. And, and as we understand context uh, and understand what the Bible says back then, you really begin to get a, a picture of what the Bible means. Then application, that's the third step. What does the Bible mean to me? And here's a, here's a mistake we often make in, in 2021 because so much of our thinking is, oh, it's all about us, right? We think that. But, but you know, when, when you really... If you're just reading the Bible, trying to discern what does this mean to me, you're getting just, you're missing so much of what the Word of God says. So my challenge to us is that, that we, we kind of learn from Ezra. We learn to study the Bible. I'm going to give you some couple tools. Here's, here's two. Um, there's a, a really good book by Greg Gilbert. It's written by Nine Marks, which is a, a really 
God, Mark Dever's ministry, which is a, I don't agree with everything with Mark Dever, but he's a godly guy and writes some good stuff. But Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, and then Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. You ought to write those down. Those are helpful tools that will give you a, a jump start into studying the Bible. And, and, and you know, Living by the Book, so it's, it's a thick one. Hey, you know what? Let's dig into what the Word of God says. Let's work on the Word of God. Let's study the Word of God. And this is something that, that we need to understand. Why, why should we do this? Because do you know that our church believes that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God? That's what we believe. Here's what I mean by that. Inspired means that, that God directed these words to be written. That God moved these words to be written. Infallible means that from start to finish, this, this book can show you how to live your life. From start to finish, by, by inerrant means that, that when all the facts are known, the, the, the original manuscripts of God's word will be found to be completely true. We believe this. And you need to study this. This is the word of God to us. And, and I, I appreciated so much uh, several years ago, one of my, my professors in seminary, Rustin Umstadt, went to Super Summer and, and, and spoke at Super Summer to our students. And, and, and he challenged our kids. He asked a question among the, the 3,000 kids that were at Super Summer. He says, how many of you have read Harry Potter? And all these hands went up. And then he said, how many of you have read the Bible? And very few hands went up. And he's like, come on, kids. If this is the word of God, we need to, we need to read it. We need to study it. So I want to challenge us to, to recognize the power of the Word of God, that, that, that this 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, it was written by, in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, over a, a period of more than 1,000 years by over 40 authors you know, on three continents. That's what this book was, that's what God put together for us. It was written by kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, the book covers history, sermons, letters, hymn books, and a love song. There are geographical surveys, architectural specifics, travel diaries, population statistics, family trees, inventories, and legal documents. It covers a hundred, hundreds of controversial subjects with amazing unity. And, and, and you know what's so cool about this book? It is the best-selling book of all time. Is that cool or what? And, and this is why we need to live in a world, and, and, and as followers of Christ, if you come to Jesus, you need to read what he said. Come on, people. Let's read the book. And I'm not just trying to make you feel guilty. But look, this matters. And there was a revival in the time of Ezra coming back to the word of God. And, and, and to be honest, I have more to say than time to say it today. So let's hustle, okay? And I'm cutting parts of my sermon, so if you're following in the notes online, then I'm skipping some because I just need to skip some. But, but, but point number two is important. Not only do we need to study the Bible, we need to do the Bible, right? We need to do it. That's why the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to put it into practice. And, and let's do that. And here's what I find in Baptist life. We, we are so theological, and that's good. We need to think theologically. Theology is the study of God. And we need to do a good job of, of knowing what the Bible says. But you know what? Some, one, of our, one of our negative results of being so theological is we get a little cocky. We get a little arrogant. And I've found in my life, as I'm studying the, if I'm studying the Bible correctly, 
I can tell I'm studying it correctly if I'm not as arrogant, if I'm a little more humble, a little more in awe of God. That's how you know you're studying the Bible correctly. If you're getting, if you're looking down on somebody as you study the Bible, or you're getting, uh, you know, puffed up in your own self when you're studying the Bible, you're not studying it right. Now, when you, you know, when you study the Bible correctly, you know what it looks like? Galatians 5, 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says there's no law on those things. And this is what it produces when you start doing the Bible. It produces humility in you. And and, and 1 Peter 5, 5, 5, and 6 says, All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And one of the things I pray that we do is we we we, we Recognize the humility that God's word brings to us. There's another important aspect as you as you do the Bible, you realize that 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 it's caught that the, the, the principle that it's caught more than taught is key. You, you realize that that as we live this out, more than a, a culture that's gonna just listen to what we teach, they're gonna catch what we do. It's kind of like this years ago. Um, this girl named Susie grew up in my student ministry in Ada, Oklahoma, and she heard me teach countless numbers of Bible studies that I would bust my tail to, to get notes out, and I'd have clip art, and I'd have points, and I would summarize these passages like I try to do today. And, and uh, then Susie was in my youth ministry. Then she, in college, she worked for me for a couple of years. And one day I was hanging out with, with her and I said, Susie, tell me something I taught you about God. You've been in all kinds of Bible studies with me. What did I teach you about the Lord? And she just scratched her head and she goes, huh. She goes, well, huh. If I, as I really think about it, I can remember that time when I was in high school and we went to that uh, conference in Oklahoma City. We spent the night in the gym. And you sprained your ankle and you didn't cuss. That really impacted me. I was so mad. I looked at her and thought, I almost cussed right then when she said that. Because I was like, are you kidding me? All the Bible studies that you were in in my life, in the years that you were in my ministry and and that we talked about it, you just remembered that I I sprained my ankle and and I didn't cuss? And, And that was one of those lessons that taught me. You know, when we do the Bible, that's caught more than taught. You know, as a parent, as you raise your kids, you realize that your kids are going to catch from you more than they hear a lecture from you. And believe me, my kids have suffered through many, many car sermons. They tell me this all the time. Another car sermon from my dad but you know they're going to catch more than we're going to teach. And that's a pretty important principle. Which leads us to the third point. And I want want you to notice this. I want to land here today. Like, not only do we study the Bible, not only do we do the Bible, but point number three is we teach the Bible. 
Now, before you sit there and go, all right, he's going to tell us I need to be a Sunday school teacher. We got all these jobs at the church that people need to work on. And those are all true. You, you, many of you, some of you should teach. You should teach. Some of you are just right now not teaching, and you should. There's plenty. We, we have needs right now of service in our church. Right now. And, and you're sitting at home on Wednesdays, and you're, you're sitting at home on... You, you need to be jumping in. Some of you aren't jump, jumping in, and you need to be. It's time to jump in. But I don't want to miss how cool this lesson is. Look back at verse 1. I want you to look at Ezra 7, 1, and let's not miss this. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, now the book of Ezra covers a hundred years. A hundred years is where the book of Ezra is covering, and, and he's looking back 60 right here, and, and you know what he's describing here? He's not describing, go teach a Bible study. He's describing a generational lesson that he has learned. Oh my goodness, we got to hear this. Because I, I, can't, I, I can't get this out of my gut today. And, and this week I've just been wrestling through, oh my goodness, this is a generational lesson that I pray we catch both, both individually and I pray we catch it corporately. Uh, because, you know, it's funny to me. Right now, I'm getting all kinds of questions about, oh, Chris, man, especially after, after the governmental overreach this week, is Jesus is definitely coming back, like, in the next 12 days, you know? Oh, my goodness, he's coming back. Well, well here's the deal. I'm going to tell you something so profound about the second coming of Christ. We are closer today than we've ever been. Right? And anytime when somebody asks me, when's Jesus coming back? I'm like, well, we're closer today we've ever been. But if ever anybody says to you, oh, let me tell you when Jesus is going to come back, the Bible has a word for them. It's called false teacher, right? It's why Spurgeon is one of my favorite preachers throughout church history. And, and Spurgeon made this, I think it was Spurgeon that said this, uh, that, that if you're going to make a prediction on the second coming of Christ, be smart enough to make that prediction after you're dead, because it's going to be way less embarrassing for you. <laughs> It may be embarrassing for your family if you write it down and, like, publish a book about it or whatever. But, but look, I don't know when Jesus is going to return. I would argue that many of us in our generation are so self-centered that we think it's going to happen in our time. Now, we should always be expecting it. Don't get me wrong here. But let me propose a thought to you. What if God is moving us to such a revival, going back to the Word of God, as we see cultural pressures coming our way. What if, it, what if God is moving us to such a revival to this that it's not our generation that's going to learn from this, but what if it's our great, great-grandchildren that look, look back at whatever Ancestry.com looks like three generations from now and looks back and goes, wow, you know what? My great-great-grandpa really believed this book. What if we are to have a generational vision looking forward at setting such an example that those that come behind us would be inspired to follow our example? Notice that, that he says, 
Ezra, in the time of Artaxerxes, Darius and Cyrus were generations before. Let's not miss the generational example. And you know what I don't want us to miss? Is the generational call. Let me tell you something. There's going to be a day that some little kid is going to call me grandpa. Now, I hear that's really fun. I don't know what that's like right now. I hear you would do that first if you could. I can't make that math work. But, but let me tell you something. We've got to have a generational vision. You know what I pray? I pray that I walk, my, Robin and I walk with the Lord in such a way that my great-great-grandkids learn a lesson. You know what? We need to have that kind of vision individually. And, I, and let me hear you. Let's, let's make the, I want to make the call clear today. Some of us need to come back to the Word of God and repent of the way we're living. And you need to hear that there is a generational influence coming behind you that you've got to see. It's time to come back to the Word of God in your life individually. It's time to make sure that our church has a generational vision corporately. You realize that none of this at First Baptist Owasso started with any of us. Last year, I preached the final funeral of the founding church member, members of First Baptist Owasso. We're a next generation. And let me tell you something. If we do our job, there will be a generation that follows us. And let me tell you something. There must be a generation that follows us, that follows Jesus, that believes the Word of God. And I'll tell you where that starts is we live out a generational vision. Is that what you have? I just say to you, that's what we must have. So, so today, as we respond to the voice of God, some of us, we, we need to get on our knees and repent of our, of our irresponsibility with the Word of God because you know Jesus and you, you just know better. Some of us need to get on our knees for our kids, for our grandkids. Some of us, you need to come to Jesus. Because let me tell you something, he's your only hope. He's our only hope. And, and who else is there? Who else could rise from the dead? That, 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 that's the whole point of God's people, that, that our call is to point a world to Christ. And I, and I don't want to miss pointing you to Christ. Oh, you need Jesus more than you need the next breath that you take. So we're going to have an invitation. And it's a call to get on our knees. And you know what I need some of us to do? Some of you need to, you're in the Word. You're, you're working on the Word. And you're like, man, Chris, I got that. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm living, I'm doing the best I can to walk with the Lord. 
you know what, that's okay. We're, we're, we're in this together, and we're going to strip and fall sometimes. But, man, keep, keep getting up. You know, that's what I appreciate about Steve, how vocal he is, how we just sang that song. What was that last song we sang, Joe? I can't, now I've slipped my mind. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Yesterday, we spent two hours, two and a half hours, at a memorial service for his wife. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. So, look, let's get on our knees for the next generation and our families in our church. Let's set an example of faithfulness to God. I'm going to ask you to stand where you are. Even if you're online today, I don't want you to just tune out and miss this moment. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit today. Lord Jesus, we We need a revival. We need to come back to your word, Lord. And Father, would you draw us? Lord, there's got to be someone in this room that doesn't know you as Savior, and I pray that today they would see you and, and come to you. Lord, we're burdened for our kids and our grandkids, even if we don't know them yet, even if we've never seen them yet, even if they're still written in a book before... Lord, Lord, you know them. Lord, we, we need you today. May we respond to you today. Thank you for Ezra and his example. Draw us today. Move us now. Even if they're in their homes or in this room, move us now. In Jesus' name. Amen.